Good evening and welcome back to everyone. I'm Rabbi Nick Renner and we're here tonight with Tales of the Talmud. This is this series that many of you have taken part in here at KI, this learning where we have looked at stories from the Talmud. The Talmud, uh, the longest ancient work in, the longest written work in the ancient world. Uh, is sort of two genres. It is legal material and then it is stories. It is wisdom literature. It is mysticism. All of these pieces that go back over 1500 years ago, the beginnings of the rabbinic movement within Judaism. And we are engaging, looking at some of the motifs, some of the themes that come up in this era of Jewish thought and life, as well as some of the characters and some of the folks that emerge over and over again uh, in our Talmudic stories. So this isn't the law class. That one's uh, down the hall somewhere else, but we're here learning stories tonight. Uh, as a quick refresher, the Talmud, I'll toss this out there for folks who may not have remembered or have gone to rabbinical school. The Talmud is two separate documents. First, the Mishnah, which is the very first rabbinic writings. That means it's the very first writings that emerge after the writings of the Bible and biblical works. So the Mishnah is the first of those documents. It is redacted by the year 220. And then the Gemara is the second one. The Gemara then is a further set of commentaries about the commentaries and the stories of the Mishnah. Those two works together make up the Talmud. Um, it's not entirely clear when the Talmud was finally redacted. That means when the Gemara was redacted. Uh, but probably somewhere between the year 600 and 800 or so. Furthermore, there are two Talmuds. There is a Jerusalem, a Yerushalmi Talmud, and a Babylonian Talmud, the Bavli. We mostly look at stories from the Bavli Talmud, and most of rabbinic and later medieval uh, Jewish scholarship and thought engages with the Bavli, with the Babylonian Talmud. But the other thing to keep in mind is that it has probably gotten sort of shaped and turned and modified slightly over the years as well. So a lot of scholars, if they're looking to see the original material and something that would have been closer to the original writing, will oftentimes go to the Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud, even though it's a much more difficult text. But they have a lot in common. They're very, very similar. Um, and all of this is essentially to provide a framing for it this is all the rabbinic project. This is what the rabbis, uh, who were emerging at that time as the leaders of the Jewish people, this is what they're working on in the destruction, following the destruction of the second temple. When the second temple was destroyed, that meant an end to the entire priest system, the Kohanim. It marked an end to the sacrificial system. It marked an end to that political capital that existed in Jerusalem in that sense. And so the project became how to have a relationship with God, how to have uh, a spiritual sense of peoplehood, any kind of connection with one another, if we didn't have this central place, if we didn't have this sacrificial system, if we weren't based out of Jerusalem. So how do you construct and begin to put together a Jerusalem, a uh, Judaism of the diaspora? And so that's what emerges. This is the rabbinic project. The rabbis emerge at this time. They sort of fill the gap that is uh, the vacuum left with the uh, the decline of the priesthood. They fill in this piece to emerge as the leaders of the Jewish people, and so this becomes rabbinic Judaism. The Talmud is very much their project in that sense, how to make sense of Torah, how to have a relationship with God, how to have prayer instead of sacrifice as our devotional connection to the divine, and what it means to be a Jewish people following that cataclysmic destruction by the Romans uh, in year 70 or so. Any questions about where we are right now. Go ahead. Well, um, 
from the 70 AD mm-hmm. until the time that the uh, Hebrews were dispersed into uh, uh, Babylon. Mm-hmm. That's about, what, 500 years? So it's a, it's a slightly complicated piece because the Israelites... Well, first, let me uh, repeat the question. What is the timing of this dispersal of the people into the into Babylonia, into Babel in exile? So there are a couple of different points of exile. One of them, as I mentioned, this destruction that we're talking about now is the second temple. The first temple was destroyed in 586 BCE, and the people were dispersed, taken away into Babylonia. Uh, the Babylonians were then overturned by the Persians, by King Cyrus, who allowed the Israelites to return to the land of Israel and build the second temple. So while many of the Israelites returned back to the land to be part of building this second temple, many of them also stayed. And so the Babylonian exile actually dates back to around 586 BCE. However, following the second destruction, even more of the Israelite people, these early Jewish people, began spreading out in and around to the Mediterranean basin to the west and to Babel, Babylonia in the east. So at this time, when we're talking about the emergence of the Talmud, there were these big uh, academies located throughout Babylonia where they were doing all of this studying back and forth. And then there were big academies in Israel, too. And oftentimes scholars would go back and forth from one community to the other, from different academies. So there was a sense that they were two separate poles around which all of this was emerging, but they were connected. They were part of the same project together. Um, other questions? I'm, I'm sort of happier to give more of a recap right now in some of this material because this is our first session picking back up this year. So, How late yes, did the, the Babylonian, the well, what is now Iraqi Jewish community, that existed into the 20th century, didn't it? That's correct. Um, how but far, it is no more. That's right. So a question about how long did this Babylonian mm-hmm. Jewish community exist? Um, it existed and it still exists as the contemporary Iraqi Jewish community, most of which fled or was destroyed following uh, the wars in 1948 and 1967 in the Middle East now. But that was a long-standing community that was there uh, for a long, long period. In fact, one of the academies, one of the famous academies, I believe it was Pumbadita in Babylonia, uh, today that city is called Fallujah. It's actually a city in contemporary Iraq where there was, uh, I understand, particularly fierce combat in and around the Iraq war, that there were a couple of battles there. But that originally, um, maybe not originally, I don't know if there was somebody there before the academy, but certainly before all of that unrest in the current Iraq war, that was actually a Talmudic center, uh, as strange as that might be to imagine. If you recall during the Iraq war, the second one. Yes. Okay, at one point, I turn on the TV... And there, the Americans are bombing Ur. Yes. Which is where mm-hmm. uh, Abraham was from. Yes. It's uh, very strange sounding. <laughs> it's a, and we see this too in the land of Israel, both the resonance in terms of these ancient places uh, in Israel, in Syria, in Iraq, uh, and their resonance through a lot of our biblical text, post-biblical and Talmudic texts, and even further on into history. It's amazing the way in which these ancient Resonances and histories and memories um, continue to remain with us in spite of current events. Other questions about this enterprise, the Talmudic project, the rabbinic project? Yeah, Grant. So I get how the Talmud is useful for the rabbis at times to 
expand on laws of, of the Torah and, and, and weigh in with their opinions about esoteric mm-hmm. things in the Torah. But I don't, I don't appreciate or I don't understand what the purpose of stories that you, you, you focus on, what their purpose is. Okay. So the question was... Mm-hmm. It makes sense to have the Talmud to unpack all of these laws and these rules and figure out, okay, how do you live with Torah law? What does it mean? You have to unpack it and explicate it to some degree. But then what's the point of stories? Well, this takes us to another important point about the Talmud. Uh, Originally, this was all oral material. These were conversations, essentially. The thing emerged as this very organic conversation in and around what was called the Beit Midrash, this rabbinic study hall. And so... Because the rabbis weren't quite setting out in a super formal, regimented way to work on all of these laws, they interspersed it with their stories, with their accounts of other rabbis, with stories of travel and all kinds of other pieces. And so in that way, the whole thing winds up sort of blended together. You very much reading a page of this or reading a solid sequence of, uh, you know, a, um, of a tractate of Talmud, you feel the orality of it, that it is conversational, that they move from laws to stories and back again in ways that very much reflect their gathering around and talking about it. Um, one particular example I think about this are the travels of Rabbah Bar Bar Kama, one of the more peculiar and strange sets of stories of the travels of this one rabbi who encounters giants and demons and sea monsters along this whole voyage that he's on. And it begins with the rabbis talking about boats and rules about boats and rules about boat dimensions and shipbuilding and all of that. And it transitions with them saying, and here's a story about a guy who went on a boat one time. (laughs) So you very much get the sense that it's a conversation, that they're really hashing it all out in this way. So it didn't get written down and recorded in this sense until much later, and we're not sure exactly when it was finally redacted, the entire work. But it did start out as a conversation in that way. Does that mean that the uh, rabbis had read Homer? (laughs) <laughs> Did the rabbis read Homer? It, it's a funny question. In all, yeah, in all seriousness, their interaction with Greek culture and Greek stories um, is an interesting one. It's interesting the way in which they derive concepts and ideas from Greek. Some of them have Greek names, in fact. This uh, word Sanhedrin, which was the rabbinic great council of 70 of the greatest rabbis, essentially their supreme court, um, that derives from the Greek syndarion for a certain kind of uh, conclave or gathering. I'm not as familiar with the Greek, but fundamentally it's a Greek word that they took on. So their relationship with Greek and Roman culture is a complicated thing. There's a lot of antagonism about it, which we're going to see in this story today, but it's uh, it's complicated in that way. Granted, you have a follow-up? Um, yeah. No, I, uh, so so that it, it, you're <laughs> saying that the... That the Stories are, are are there because um, it's a conversation, and, and, and they they started out talking about laws, and then they would, would go off into these men written things. But why did they have to write it down? I mean, why did they think it was important enough to, to, to write down? I mean, are, are, are we supposed to take away from these stories meanings to our lives? I mean, are are they allegories or? What so? All right. So to distill down, mm-hmm. what's the point of these stories? Why mm-hmm. learn them? I think that's a great question. Actually, what are we doing with this today? 
it gives us a few things. First, it speaks to us and it tells us the stories of their lived experience. It tells us about what were their perspectives. It enables us, it gives us a window into the people who essentially were innovating what was going to become Judaism. I would suggest that uh, the destructions of the temple mark the distinction between what I would suggest was uh, ancient Israelite worship to transition into what is now Judaism. I think that the Judaism that we have today is very much a function of this rabbinic project, and their stories let us into what this project is all about, how Judaism became what it is today, how it emerged to become what it is. Furthermore, these stories are also their own ways of commenting on life and on their world, and their ways of speaking to their values. Um, there's an interesting contrast I'll just give as an example. The rabbis talk about how on Purim it's traditional to drink so much that you uh, that you confuse Mordechai and Haman, the protagonist and antagonist from the story, that that's how drunk you should get on Purim. Well, immediately after that, they follow that with a story about two rabbis who were uh, following this custom, and one of them actually kills the other one. It winds up being an interesting cautionary tale where they say, okay, this might be the law or the custom even around Purim, but here's the actual lived experience around it, and here's the danger of it. So let's actually hold both of these with a certain kind of contrast. So I think even if they aren't legislating in a very formal sense, they are teaching, for sure. They are very much teaching about their world, their wisdom, their perspective, and also their relationship with God in that sense. So um, it's another way of teaching in that sense. It's a different sort of uh, focus. Yeah, Bert. Rabbi Bernstein was talking about this at Torah study last week because we were discussing part of the issue of the fact that there's very little archaeological evidence Mm -hmm. that the Exodus ever happened, that, that there were ever Jews in Egypt. And there was a whole discussion about what is the power of story. Mm-hmm. In English, when we say, oh, that's just a story, that's like saying, oh, that's not true. Because in many ways, we've lost the sense that stories can convey truth. Because we live in a, quote, scientific age, and the only kinds of truth are those things that can be prove, proven logically. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Story really has always been, whether it be myth or legend, which we also consider to be not, quote, not true, a very important way of communicating. Uh, I was having a discussion with somebody the other night about this and talking about, well, we don't have stories, we've lost that because we're in a scientific age. And this person, uh, I think, quite properly pointed out, no, no, no. We live in an age completely filled with stories on television. Politics. If you listen to our politicians without going into it, they weave stories. And while some of those are not, quote, true, in the sense they actually happen, they do express what for a lot of people are truths about certain people or whatever you want to, however you want to call it. So just, I should say, just because it's a, quote, story doesn't mean that it doesn't have a lot of truth in it. It right. just is a lot. It's not direct. Thank you, uh, Bert, for some of that piece on story and narrative and history. Um, the rabbis are not doing history. Mm-hmm. They are talking about historical events that mm-hmm. we know it took place. We believe that some of them, ex- that some of these rabbis and figures did exist and were real people who really lived. Um, we believe that about many of them, actually. But the exact contours and exact dates and exact chronologies. 
they're not important to the rabbis. They're not doing history in that sense. Um, so one of the other peculiarities of the Talmud is time is not exactly the most important thing to them, getting the timing, getting the dates, getting the chronology to line up. They very much tell their stories and talk about their discussion in this atemporal fashion where uh, they... They pin an awful lot on this saying in Torah, Ein mukdam Torah. There is no such thing as early or late in Torah. It exists in this realm beyond time. And so we even see arguments between rabbis that we know did not live at the same era. They might have missed each other by a couple of hundred years. And yet the Talmud sees fit to have them arguing with one another for the sake of the work, of the story, of the conversation. So um, I want to emphasize that they're not doing history in a classical Western sense, even though they are interacting with historical events, historical places. And I'm happy to delve into some of those pieces and look at where the history intersects, converges, or diverges with the rabbinic project and narrative. Um, another question or two, and then I want to get into our work here. Go ahead. So when you speak about uh, the female voice in this, here's another piece that's worth mentioning. Women are largely absent from the Talmud. We're going to see a story here today that actually looks at the role of the female role in contrast to certain kinds of rabbinic ideals and the way in which those clash. But female voices are largely absent. Furthermore, voices of people who were not educated, who might have been poor, who wouldn't have had the same training are largely absent. Most of these stories we understand to be this conversation going on amongst the societal elites in this sense. It isn't the most democratic uh, work that we have here. We're seeing um, what really reflects sort of the ivory tower of the Beit Midrash, of the rabbinic study hall as they're working on this project. It is a critique that's fair to hold in mind as we engage with these stories. And we're going to see here that they're not, the way in which gender plays itself out in the rabbinic narrative is not something that's always clean or neat. Are there any other questions before we jump into the story? <laughs> Two more. <laughs> Yes, the, mm-hmm. uh, the the rabbinical uh, settlement after the destruction of the second temple mm-hmm. did that influence what went into the uh, Talmud, mm-hmm. or was the Talmud already mm-hmm. uh, closed when when they were? Sure. So did the destruction of the Second Temple impact the development of the Talmud? Um, absolutely. Perhaps you could make the argument that it is the foundational event that leads to the Talmud's emergence as it is. If the, if the Second Temple is destroyed in 70 or so, if Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 CE or so, the Mishnah, which is the first part of the Talmud, is redacted in 220. It's the very first layer of conversation post-Bible, post-destruction. And then they continue to build on that in the Gemara and the Talmud. So it is a foundational piece that emerges in the centuries after that destruction. Is that... Yeah, Linda. So that actually is part of the question that I was going to ask. 
I've always known that there's some sort of ending to uh, contributions to the conversations of the Talmud. Mm-hmm. But I've always wondered why, um, to this day, we don't have an ongoing kind of conversation like that. Um, times have changed, and the stories have changed, and lots, there's lots to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, like a third section or something? Like, um, like a third section, like the mission of the Gemara and the something else? <laughs> so the we question... Yeah, so the question is, what do we have now? Why aren't we... Why isn't this conversation continuing? Um... I want to emphasize that even though the Talmud was redacted, probably between six and eight hundred, the commentary on it mm-hmm. was not finished. So, in every in the prominent Talmudic works, for instance, Rashi's voice mm-hmm. comes up. Rashi was a French rabbi from um, about the uh, I think the eleven hundreds, I believe, who wrote. Uh, he was one of these polymath geniuses of Jewish history and the Jewish people, and he essentially commented on the entire Talmud, all 63 uh, volumes of it. So you can read his commentary through it as you're going, and it actually, uh, sometimes it's very helpful in terms of understanding what it is they're talking about, because here's a voice that's a little bit more recent, that knows all the centuries of Jewish evolution and life uh, from a little bit more recent times. Other times it's totally obfuscating, and he'll start writing in uh, what is uh, essentially old French, um, but spelled out with uh, Hebrew characters. And I understand that there are actually some scholars of the French language who have gone to look at Rashi to understand pieces of it, because that's where he comes in. But in any event, sometimes he's helpful, sometimes he's not, but he is part of the continuing conversation. Today, when you buy a uh, volume of Talmud, one of these... Um, tractates of it, uh, many editions will actually have a section, another little piece in it, um, that talks about what the contemporary halakha is. Because they understand that the development of Jewish legal codes in the medieval era means that Talmudic law is often not what is followed in Orthodox halakhic Judaism today. One example around that is kashrut. Uh, when they're explaining all the kosher laws and all of that, they say in one point in the Talmud that uh, if you have a meat stew and you drop some milk into it, it's mivatel uh, b'shishim. If it is less than a sixtieth of the total volume, then it's fine. You go ahead and eat your stew. I don't think in an age in which we talk about having separate industrial kitchens and separate dishes and whatnot, the idea of dropping milk into a meat stew would sort of be anathema. So in a lot of uh, Talmudic volumes today then, they'll show what the actual halakha is and perhaps a little bit on how it evolved through legal codes uh, like Beit Yosef, the Tour, the Shulchan Aruch, and other pieces from the medieval era. So you're saying there was a practicality to them uh, as they did this because... Most Jews were poor in the era you're talking about. And you don't want to throw away all that meat just because somebody dribbles a little milk in there. So the Talmud is an elite... uh, This question, is there a practicality to a lot of it over this question of kashrut? I would argue yes. I would suggest that even though the rabbis are elites writing about it, they are certainly in touch and accustomed to what Jews are doing. Oftentimes their questions arise from what they see Jews doing in the day-to-day, and then they have a conversation about it. So they're not totally sequestered in their academic realm. They're in touch with the lived Jewish reality of the time. Um, Unless anyone has any burning questions, I'd love to move on to the story for today. And if you have other questions, I'm happy to talk more afterward as well. Today, we are looking at a rabbi named Shimon Bar Yochai. Um, This story is 
It's about a page and a half, two pages or so, double-spaced, front and back on this page. Um, what I want to invite you all to do for reading this is to break into chevrutas, into chevrutot, into pairs. And Or you could be three people, that's fine too. But I want you to take a pass at this story, reading it in your pair or your group of three, whatever that is. I also want to put out there the disclaimer that, yes, it's weird and it's confusing. And if you're confused, you're in the right place. The Talmud is... Look, it's essentially, uh, I would suggest, some of the most challenging written works that Judaism has ever produced. So in terms of being convoluted and bizarre, frankly, um, it's right up there. So if you read this and you're trying to say, what on earth is going on here? You are in good company. And what we'll do then, after you all have a chance to read it in your pairs or groups of three, we'll reconvene as a larger group to read it and unpack it and discuss the various pieces. So I would say take five or ten minutes or so to really move through it. You don't have to worry about uh, unpacking it in the fullness of the discussion. We'll do that together. Um, but try and at least make a pass through it to have an idea of who are the characters, what's sort of going on. So with that, I invite you to get into those chevrutot and break. Okay. Welcome back. So I understand that you all have had enough time at this point to make it all the way through to the end of the story. This is just the first pass. It's okay if it's confusing, if it's nonsensical. We're going to unpack it all together. We're going to answer all of your questions. We're going to spend this time doing it together. But I wanted to give you all the opportunity to sort of get the broad strokes of what's going on here, to get a little bit of the characters, to get a little bit of what's happening in this story. So... Can I get a brave volunteer to read just that first sentence? Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, and Rabbi Shin, Shimon Bar Yochai were sitting together, and Yehuda Ben Garim was sitting near them. Okay, questions? Yes, Jill. Why is, ben, is Yehuda Ben Garim mentioned there and never again? Okay, good question. So Yehuda ben Gerim, I also, why is he mentioned there but not in a different anywhere else? Yes. 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 He is mentioned later and he will be mentioned, uh, he will certainly be mentioned in part two. He actually is there for the big conclusion of this. We'll probably finish that next time we gather as a group. This is a two-parter we have right now. Um, other folks asking about Yehuda ben Gerim, he is distinct from Rabbi Yehuda. Um, who is a different character, and we can talk about him if there's interest, but Yehuda ben Geri means literally Yehuda, son of proselytes, or converts, is what his name means. Um, other questions about just on that first sentence, yeah? Well, so he doesn't sit with them. Correct. But he sits near them. He's overhearing them. He's a proselyte. Why is he sitting near them but not with them? Is it because he's a proselyte? I would suggest it's not because he is the son of converts, but it's probably because he's not a rabbi in that sense. The three rabbis seem to be sitting together having this discussion about Rome and current events. Uh, so I'm, my suggestion is that it probably has to do with that rather than that his parents were converts in that sense. Doesn't Gare mean stranger? Doesn't Gare mean stranger? Yes. In the Torah, when it talks about being strangers in a strange land, that's the word it uses. Uh, that's the word that once rabbinic Judaism begins to figure out how it is that you convert to Judaism, uh, which is a big question. If you look at the Torah, we have the story of Ruth and Naomi, and she just says, hey, I'm going to, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. Um, and she just sort of throws in her lot. Um, the rabbis make conversion a somewhat more complicated <laughs> process, to put it lightly. Uh, this word that they use, ger, 
gives us the word that they use in Hebrew for conversion. A conversion in Hebrew is called giur, the process of it. That's the word we still use for it. It is this rabbinic understanding of going from being um, a stranger to the tradition to being familiar with it, to being part of it in that way. Goyim? So uh, the question, what about the word goyim? Goy is a nation. In uh, the Torah, they talk about it's, it doesn't have the same loaded connotation that it does in sort of more contemporary Yiddish. Uh, it just talks about being like you could be a light onto the nations. Uh, the Goy Kadosh, the Lo Goy El Goy Cherev, nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Uh, it's a word for nation more generally speaking. That said, I think everybody here understands that it's really taken on a sort of an ugly connotation in more contemporary and modern times. Other questions from this first sentence? Yeah, Tom. Uh, is this, um, the whole thing here implies that this is post-Constantine, what you say about the difficulty of conversions. Rabbis didn't make conversion tough until they had to. When, when proselytizing uh, to be Jewish became a capital offense. Constantine uh, was 300. So, well, the question is, is this post-Constantine in terms of the difficulty around conversion? I'm not sure that they are meaning to imply that conversion is difficult in terms of temporary. You just mentioned it. That's why I asked. Yes, that the rabbis over time did. We're looking at really pretty early in the rabbinic uh, narrative. We're looking at a time we see uh, down. Did I put it in there? Yes. So the emperor they're talking about is Hadrian. In this time, what's that? Yeah, like the probably 130 or 140 or so. I think 130 something. I'm not positive on the exact date. So we're thinking 130 something CE for the timing of it. Um, Giur as a process conversion may not have been that difficult at this time. I would have to look more into it, but it certainly doesn't have the same the same fullness of ritual and challenge that it has with some of it. There are early works talking about Hillel and Shammai where they talk to potential converts to Judaism and they tell them things that are difficult or easy and there's a tradition where they turn somebody away three times. There's a whole range of stuff, but we're sort of at the beginning of giur of conversion in the sense that we uh, would inherit it as Jews today. Um, is what I would say about that. Other questions about just that first sentence? All right, so let's continue onward. Um, does anybody want to take that second sentence for us? Read it aloud. Okay. Go uh, for it. Rabbi Huda started by saying, how beautiful are the works of this people. Go ahead, you can take the next one too. They have built streets, they have built bridges, and they have built baths. Well, they built... <laughs> okay, so how wonderful are the works of these people? The footnote there, I identify these people as the Romans. So look, they build streets, they build bridges, they build baths. How lovely is that? Any questions or responses to that? All right, so we can continue on. Does somebody want to take um, a couple of the next couple of sentences with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's response? Rabbi Shimon and his son fled and hid in the bed. Uh, Hang on, we're uh, a little, we're not quite there yet. Oh well, I'm rushing along. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> we'll have the rest of us have to catch up though. Okay. Go ahead. They have built baths. Rabbi Yosa was silent. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai answered and said, "All they made was just for them. They built markets for prostitutes. They built baths to rejuvenate themselves, and bridges to levy tolls." 
At this, Yehuda ben Gerem went and spoke of their conversation, which eventually reached the government. They decreed, Yehuda who praises shall be praised. Yasa who was silent shall be exiled to Sipporah. Shimon, who spoke ill, shall be executed. Okay, so that's a good chunk to take here. Questions about this piece. So, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai responds, Feh, all this stuff, that's not so great. They did it all for themselves. It's all greedy, nasty stuff that they did for themselves. Well, Yehuda ben Gerim overhears this, and word makes it back to the government, the Romans, who say, great. Yehuda, who had such nice things to say, shall be praised. Yossi, who didn't say anything, who didn't stick his neck out, we're going to exile him to Tsipori. Rabbi Shimon, who spoke ill, we will kill him. Questions about this piece? Is the implication here, mm-hmm. uh, Rabbi Shimon, that uh, they really should have done things for the sake of heaven, and that what they were doing was just for their own worldly pleasure? So Did what that, that is, is the implication of what... Right. What was wrong with what here. What's wrong with the Romans making things for themselves? That's a good question. Uh, and it's not entirely clear. The mm-hmm. implication may be that they should have been doing it for heaven or for other people. Mm-hmm. The implication may also be nothing more than that he is launching into this anti-Roman diatribe. Hang on a sec. We have a, a few different conversations going on. Linda, you're saying this doesn't sound that different from what was said today. What's going on these days? More generally speaking, you mean? Right. All the bankers and all the stockbrokers and all of this, they're doing all of it just for themselves. What about, you know? Okay, so maybe that there's an interesting sort of commentary there that speaks to our world, too, that the people who are so successful in finance and industry and all these things are not doing it for the betterment of society. They're doing it for themselves. That's one reading of it, for sure. Um, Judith, did you, uh, you want to weigh in as well? Well, I was saying, today if you speak ill, mm-hmm. you, you know what I mean, it's right. uh, anti-Semitic or whatever, it shall be executed. It's very contemporary. <laughs> there certainly are places in the world where to speak ill of a, a government or a polity or a people would be grounds for execution. Um, thank God ours is not the kind of place where we, if we speak ill of our political officials and elected representatives, they would come and execute us. Um, but there are places in the world where that very much is still the case. Uh, yeah, Jill, and then, sorry, go ahead. However, not to get political, yeah. but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> um, Bert will redact this from the podcast. Yeah. Go ahead. Right. It, so when Garam snitched and it reached the government, the government made these decrees. And so that's one comment. It wasn't the rabbis. It was the government. Mm-hmm. And there are people now in the government-ish who say kick these people out, or these people this, or, you know, in our government and in other governments. So, it's really not that far from today. The fact that, okay, so this piece about perhaps it's closer to our own time, that here we have a government, this Roman administration, drawing lines about who's in and who's out, who's part of the society and who's not. Um, This speaks to certainly the tension of this era. Uh, It speaks to some of the tensions in our own society as well. Go ahead. Maybe it's a cautionary tale mm. that uh, better be careful uh, to whom you say these things and uh, 
Maybe there is a cautionary element to it. I think that's a great comment. Be careful who you say such negative things to across the board. Robert, did you have? Well, it's also interesting that even he who didn't say anything mm-hmm. gets in trouble. Uh, and, you know, the, and the, the rabbis in the Torah even cautions us not to stand by and do nothing when, when something is not right. Mm-hmm. So... It's interesting that, yeah, Rabbi Yossi gets exiled to Tsipori. Um, I'll take just a moment to look at that, actually. Is he exiled? Um, Tsipori is a very interesting place, actually, back then. Tsipori was this very rich, very wealthy cosmopolitan city at the time where uh, Romans and other people who have different backgrounds actually existed and really dwelt in real um, coexistence. The city actually won awards um, from the Roman administrators for being such a peaceful and compliant city, even though there was also a Roman legion stationed there. Tsipori is in the Galilee. It's a little bit north, actually. I am hoping that on our Israel trip this summer that we'll get to go see there and see some of the excavations. It's beautiful what you can see in terms of the mosaic art, the um, construction of these old synagogues from this same era. Um, it's possible to actually visit this place that we're discussing and we're visiting in these stories. It's a beautiful place, and I'm hoping we'll have the chance to see it this summer as well. Um, Tsipori is interesting in that it and Jerusalem come to represent a certain cultural divide within the Jewish people. Jerusalem winds up being the center of the hardliners. Jerusalem is where the true believers are. Tsipori, in contrast, was this wealthy city of trade and economic success, and it was a much more moderate place that sought to have an understanding with the Romans and figure out how they can sort of live in relative peace together. Um, There were coins minted in this city around the same time of the Great Revolt, 118 or so, that actually talk about it as the city of peace. So there's a lot of interesting history there. Um, Later on, the Sanhedrin gets established in Sipori by uh, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Well, he doesn't establish it. He moves to Tsipori um, and becomes the head of the Sanhedrin. This is the same Rabbi Yehuda we have here in his younger days. He's the guy who's eventually going to go on to become the political leader and the founder of a great rabbinic dynasty, the head of the Sanhedrin. Nasi is his... uh, It means prince. It oftentimes gets rendered as the patriarch, the political leader of the people. Um, And that gets established in Tsipori. So it becomes this very culturally, religiously, and historically significant city. So this question of maybe that's not so bad that Yossi got shipped off to Tsipori. Uh, maybe that's not bad at all. But he was just silent. Yeah, he was just silent. But being exiled, nevertheless, was... Perhaps it's a, it's a dislocating thing, but he does get sent yeah, to this... What, it, yeah, it is kind of benign. It winds up being this big center of Jewish religious and cultural life, in particular after the destruction following the Bar Kokhba revolt. Bar Kokhba revolt from year 132 to 135, the Romans ultimately put it down and destroy much of Judean life in and around the land of Israel, much of the people. Tsipori is largely spared because it doesn't take part in the same violence. So um, the legacy of Tsipori is very different. So what kind of a punishment is it to be exiled there? It's a question we can continue to hold as we continue in the story. Other questions on this part? Are we ready to move on? Is that related to Tsipori? Sephora, um, I don't know. That's a good no. question. Literally, it means uh, 
Tzipora is a bird. Tzipori has to do with bird etymologically in the Hebrew. I'm not sure what the connection is there, but that is the. But even Tzipora today is a name in modern Israel. Um, if you see politicians named Tzipi, for instance, mm-hmm. that's a shortening of Tzipora. Um, the same word for bird. Does somebody want to uh, take? I don't know the next few sentences. Rabbi Shimon and his son fled and hid in the Beit Hamidrash. His wife brought him bread and a jug of water, and they ate. But when the decree became even more severe, he said to his son, women are of weak resolve and she may be tortured and expose us. So they went and hid in a cave. A miracle occurred and a carob tree and water well were created for them. They would strip their clothing and sit up to their necks in sand. The whole day they studied. And when it came time for their prayers, they got dressed, prayed, and then undressed so they wouldn't wear out the clothing. In this way, they dwelled for 12 years in the cave. Okay, questions. Well, actually, I want to preempt a question that I heard from a couple of different Chevrutot uh, groups. Did the wife of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai go with them into the cave? All of the traditional understanding is no, that they were worried about her being an informant or informing on them in the government, and when we talk about their emergence, it really is only the two of them, which is why the text is read that they essentially abandoned her in the Beit Midrash and went and hid in this cave. Questions about this piece? Plus, they wouldn't have gotten naked like that with her. That's true, too. They would not have gotten undressed like that because it would have been uh, impious in that sense. Um, I tell you, the, the sand would have made them itch. <laughs> the sand would have made them itch. Where does the sand come from? It's a good question. It just seems to be the backdrop, the setting for this story, that there is this cave with a sandy floor, and somehow they are able to bury themselves up to their necks in it. If you were to make... I, uh, I oftentimes... Uh, I like quoting my rabbi, uh, Rabbi Steve Sager. He was the one who really taught me a lot of these stories. And he tells... Uh, he used to tell us, even in North Carolina, it's a very Hollywood thing to say, but, you know, so it makes sense here. But he said, put together your own movie version of this. What does this look like if you were to imagine you were watching this as a film? It's actually a useful exercise because if you begin airing that out and talking about your movie version of it, you can see which assumptions you've written into your story and which assumptions other people might have that are different. It allows you to look at some of the discrepancies and ambiguities in the text. So... You know, my movie version of this is literally a couple of talking heads. They don't have books. They don't have books in front of them because this stuff wasn't written down yet. So these two heads are just talking, having this conversation about this for studying? twelve years. They're good not question too. Text. What are they studying? They're not studying text because it hasn't been written down yet. Well, they're probably. Well, Torah was written at that point. Torah was written at that they point. They pro- exactly. They probably memorized it, and they're having their own discussion, their own commentary on it, which, as I mentioned before, the Talmud started out as an oral document, so we're seeing sort of the construction of it, albeit in a very weird way. Questions about this piece? Yeah, Bob. Well, the decree was that they shall be executed. Yes. But yet in the second paragraph, as they were hiding... It says, but when the decree became even more severe. Yes. And so the question is, what was more severe than execution? That's a good question. What is more severe than execution? It says here, when the decree became more severe. 
So one thing I want to toss out is that these characters, Rabbi, in particular Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, to a lesser extent Rabbi Yehuda, because he's younger here, but the other two of them were disciples of Rabbi Akiva. Does anybody remember Rabbi Akiva from our studies last year? Rabbi Akiva was martyred by the Romans. He was part one of the ten rabbis who were martyred in this way. He was flayed alive. Um, and they sold the pieces of him in the market. If you recall that story where Moshe, or Moshe Rabbeinu Moses, gets whisked off to Rabbi Akiva's Beit Midrash. There's a whole long story that we read last year about it, but he is one of the famous rabbis who were martyred. Um, I imagine martyrdom in that fashion might be worse than uh, pure well, execution. It might, it might refer to torture prior to execution. I mean, that might be That could too. There are those that might interpret it that way. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, we can only speculate. The reason I mention uh, the reason I mention Rabbi Akiva's martyrdom is because he was a teacher and a, a real impact on Shimon Bar Yochai. He was one of the formative figures in Shimon Bar Yochai's development. So, I think it stands to reason that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai would have the experiences of Rabbi Akiva. Very, very central in his own mind when figuring out what he's going to do. Ruben, did you uh, have a thought too? Well, I'm just saying, that, you know, somebody can be an outlaw, but uh, how serious is the government about wanting to catch him and execute him? So it's not a question of uh, what could be more severe than execution. Mm-hmm. It's a question of uh, how serious is the. Uh, proposed executioner in wanting to affect uh, this. Okay, so perhaps it's not a matter of the execution itself was worse, but perhaps they are more pressing in their search. Perhaps they've ra- they've upped the bounty that they put on him, if you imagine them putting out a bounty in your movie version. There are a couple of different ways to slice it. I think you're right. Other- the assumption of this text yes. is that Rabbi Shimon and his wife, I guess, just had one child. That Which would have been be. very unusual. Which perhaps that was time. as well. Very unusual considering that the son was old enough to be studying with him. So this wasn't the, wasn't the baby. Mm-hmm. So that's And the son just appears. Maybe they had daughters. They could Maybe have they had did, daughters. but their daughter, it doesn't say their daughters went with them. No. So we don't know what happened to their daughters. The other question is, could they have had other sons who weren't as learned? Because by the time they're coming out, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but we see uh, his son gets talked about as a rabbi later on. So what if they had other sons who simply didn't make the grade, and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai saw fit to really take the uh, star with him? That's a possibility, too. Or they were actually, they had jobs. But they That's a possibility, been, too. But they, they, they may very well have been in danger. That I could mean, he could, he could have gone off by himself mm-hmm. and left his wife and the kids at home. Mm-hmm. Also, and I'm assuming that this is a magnificent translation by Rabbi Nick Renner. Indeed it, it is. It says, Uh-oh, Rabbi Shimon say and his son fled. Yes. His wife brought him bread and a jug of water. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say his wife brought them bread mm-hmm. and a jug of water. It says they brought him, mm-hmm. which is strange to me. And they and then and then they ate. They so maybe maybe she brought the food just for her husband. Why she wouldn't bring it for her son as well? And the husband then shared it with his son. Mm-hmm. 
That's entirely possible. It is an invitation. The ambiguity in language is certainly about him versus them, the singular versus the plural. It certainly is an invitation to speculate on this. And the other clearly was him in the Hebrew. Uh, Ernest may not be her son. That's a possibility, ah. too. What if it isn't her son? That's a good question. Um, what if they have other children? All of that is entirely possible. The other possibility is that these guys are just telling a story and they're playing fast and loose with their pronouns. The Talmud does that with some regularity, too. So the two of them, they ran away, and then the wife, oh, yeah, she brought him some stuff to eat and whatever. Uh it could just be that they're gathered around telling this story, and it sort of reflects that informality. The Talmud isn't... uh they're not as systemic uh, and formal with a lot of their grammar and their language. Trying to study uh, Aramaic grammar, <laughs> parenthetically, can be nightmarish because of just how informal they are with it and just how loose they are with a lot of it. It really, you do get the, uh, the sense of the orality in the language, and so I want to suggest that we may be seeing that here, too. Was this written in Aramaic or Hebrew? This is Hebrew. This I'm is saying, written in Hebrew. This is Hebrew. I'm saying that later on, with a lot of the oral text, we see the flavor of it oh. in this sense. In the meantime, when all this is going on, a miracle occurred, and a pair of tree and water were created. Yes, yes. So who created it? And it's a miracle. So ostensibly, they stripped their clothing and stood for the Jesus did it. Jesus did it. I don't know that Jesus doing it would be the traditional rabbinic take on it, but that's you're welcome to add that to the con- to the conversation, Tom. Um, I want to toss something else into the mix here, which is that there are a couple of images that we're meant to get. It's interesting how we get this female providence that then gets replaced with divine providence. They run away from her, and this role that she had played in terms of uh, feeding them, taking care of them, that gets sort of replaced in this sense. Um, There's a whole genre of rabbinic conversation, maybe not genre, but there's a whole great deal of rabbinic dialogue and conversation about who is the most pious, who spends the most time in the Beit HaMidrash, who spends the most time away from their family. And eventually there winds up being corrective text where they're saying, look, it's not so pious to spend every minute away from your wife and your kids all studying all the time. Um, This text in that way, them going off to this cave and just talking together it represents a certain kind of rabbinic fantasy. This idea of being able to immerse yourself physically in this sense and just study Torah and just have this whole Talmudic discussion 24-7 and not actually have to be in reality. Um, it represents a certain kind of rabbinic fantasy at work here. They don't have to be in the army. This is how it started with our husband's our husband's our the man cave? Okay, this rendering of the cave here is the man cave. That's an interesting reading of it, too. I want to continue. Yeah, go ahead, Blanche, and then we'll continue on. Yeah, this is before football. Thanks, Bert. Go ahead. Uh, Isn't it a fantasy that a person could be in sand up to his neck all day? What about elimination? What about eating? Yes, it is. The whole thing is a fantasy. That the only, that they lived their entire lives buried in this way, studying all day, every day, all the time, and the only thing that they came up for was prayer. It's ludicrous on the face of it. It is 
fantastical in that sense. It represents and it speaks to a certain rabbinic ideal and fantasy. Even though it's not, yeah, even though it's not uh, realistic. Judy, you just made this, uh, the, the statement, somebody's got to be making a living. I think that's a remarkably apt statement. We're going to come back to this piece, too. Does somebody want to read the next paragraph? Flip the page over. One day, Elijah came and stood at the entrance of the cave and exclaimed, Who will inform Bar Yochai that the emperor is dead and his decree is annulled? So they emerged. Seeing a man plowing and sowing his field, they exclaimed, they abandon eternal life in favor of temporal life. Wherever they cast their gaze was instantly incinerated. So they have been sitting in the cave for 12 years with their study fantasy, just talking about all of these divine and wonderful things. Uh, Elijah happens by at the door, and he doesn't even speak directly to them. He just sort of says such that they overhear, oh, I wonder if that guy Bar Yochai knows, by the way, that the uh, emperor Hadrian is dead, and uh, so the decree is no longer effect. Um, you can imagine Elijah as being a shepherd or a goat herd. He takes Elijah Hanavi, this prophetic mystical figure, takes different forms at different times. And different people speak of the Elijah moments and the way in which Elijah intersects with them in these stories. We may look at Elijah as a character further at some point. But in this case, he sort of is the catalyst to trigger things into moving forward. He sort of comes by and says this aloud and then saunters off is what it sort of sounds like here. Meanwhile, they come out. And then they, the first thing, they see this guy farming, and they are infuriated by it. They are appalled. Here's somebody who's not learning Torah all day, every day, like they are. What kind of outrageousness is that? Uh, this guy is concerned with temporal, day-to-day -day physical matters when, when they should be worried about eternal life and whatever. That's disgusting to them. Airpon, everything they look at catches fire. That means they burned down his fields. Like Possibly. Um, it doesn't say whether what they're setting fire to is that farmer's field specifically, or they're setting fire to other people's things. They're setting fire to storehouses, to houses. It doesn't specify. It just says what they set their gaze upon um, burst into flames in that sense. From anger. From anger, possibly. Possibly the man plowing. Yeah, Tom. It's to me that they're very angry about having been stuck away for 12 years. Mm -hmm. um, well. And, uh, and, and they're taking out their rage. Mm -hmm. um, but they also could, from all that studying, have become, quote, too righteous. Too righteous? Right. So. I put quote, I put air quotes well, around that. That's a tradition. Just mm -hmm. study. To become rabbis. What? But are we getting to the point where there's a question as to whether pure study is that perfect? They marry their daughters off to these brilliant rabbis that sat and studied all the time. Well, actually, hang on. I want to. I want to take that on. Go forward about two, couple hundred years. So the so let's think about that. What did the rabbis actually do? Through most of the history of rabbis, they had jobs. Exactly, Bert. So sandal makers. Yeah. So let me see. I have something written down here. Um, I believe. Yeah. Jobs. 
Yeah, and Rabbi uh, Yossi here, his job was a leather worker. We know that was his profession. He just happens to be a rabbi on top of that. Most of the rabbis in these texts had jobs. Rashi was a winemaker, famously. There's another big <laughs> example of it. Um, this idea that one can sit and just learn Torah all day, every day, This, um, which we see in... Haredi communities in Israel, um, the ultra-Orthodox, I use the term Haredi as it's understood as not to be a pejorative term, um, those Haredi communities receive a government stipend just to study all day, every day. This is a, a historically bizarre thing. As lovely as it is that they say, oh, we want to be um, advancing the Jewish people's learning of text, of Torah, of all these things, the idea that rabbis weren't engaged with people and didn't have jobs is a, uh, well, it's, I'll put it like this, it's actually a very unusual, I would say, an innovative thing from a group of people who profess to be, um, to have a monopoly on authenticity of sorts. Um, this impulse of theirs around that is a very Haredi impulse. This idea that you shouldn't have jobs, you shouldn't have to take care of the wife, the kids, and all of that. You should just be engaged in Torah all day, every day. Um, up to your neck in it. There's a, like I said, it represents a certain kind of ideal and a certain kind of fantasy, actually. Yeah. But there, there's destructiveness yes. in that ideal because wherever they cast their gaze was instantly incinerated by their disrespect, by their judgment. Mm-hmm. By their loathing, truly. Yeah. And they're about to be criticized by the bot coal. Yes. As we continue. Who wants to take the next paragraph? We're going to see. Yeah, go ahead, Jill. Yeah. Um, so Elijah wasn't a person. Good question. I, I, I'm like Eliyahu is taking on these other characteristics. Could it be that they just decided somehow that they knew? Like, did they just hear an imaginary voice? Like... The rabbinic imagination would encourage us to think that, yes, he did come, that he, different people take on this form of Elijah, the characteristics of it. Um, There are, my mentor, Rabbi Steve Sager, talks even today about that it's entirely possible to have a moment of such unbelievable serendipity, some kind of connection with an entire, with a complete stranger um, who comes in and out of your experience, your journey, very briefly. Um, perhaps there's something you learn from it. Perhaps there's something that comes of it. It's entirely possible to have, even in this era, an Elijah moment in that sense. Elijah is perhaps... Malach? What? Malach? No, a well, is he, a, is he a messenger, an angel? I mean, he's called Eliyahu Hanavi. Sorry? He's like somebody you meet on an airplane. Yeah. For... You could have an Elijah moment on an airplane. Then you never see him again. Exactly. Um, Eliyahu, the other thing I'll say about Elijah is that Elijah in some ways is like this embodiment of Reconstructionist Judaism, of some Jewish peace that resonates through every single era and every civilization in every place. Elijah is in the Bible as this prophet who delivers these prophecies. He then pops back up in the rabbinic imagination as within these Elijah moments. Then you have Elijah emerging at the Passover Seder as that ritual comes to pass and talk about opening the door for Elijah. And I think about my Seders growing up where they'd have Kos Eliyahu, the cup for Elijah, and they'd fill it up with 
wine, and then when no one was looking, my grandpa would drink it really quick, and they'd all say, "Look, Elijah came." Um, Elijah's pretty remarkable. In yeah, Elijah's pretty remarkable in Jewish tradition as being this figure who has escaped the gravity of each era to continue and to be somebody who is living and breathing and contemporary in every era in that sense. Uh, he, Elijah is a remarkable figure. I think we're going to, just talking about it, I think we're going to spend more time with Elijah at some point. He's the 3,000-year-old man. Right. Totally. So, thank you for that question about Elijah. So, does somebody want to pick up from that second paragraph on the page? Read that paragraph for us. Another brave volunteer. At this a bad call spoke out and cried, Have you come out to destroy my world? Go back to your cave. So they returned and lived there 12 months, saying, The punishment of the wicked in Gehenon is limited to 12 months. After this, a bad call spoke out and said, Go forth from your cave. At this they came out. Wherever Rabbi Elizir wounded, Rabbi Shimon here. Rabbi Shimon said to him, My son, you and I are acceptable for this world. Okay. So, they're setting fire to everything, and this divine voice, the Bat Kol, rings out and says, Did you come out to destroy my world? Go back in your cave that they somehow think that they have come out and they have some sort of mastery that they know better than everyone in the world. And the divine voice calls down and says, no, you're out here destroying my world, the divine world. In some ways, their cave, despite the fact that it is interior, it is the inside, is actually exterior to reality in that sense. The cave puts them outside God's world in this way. Questions? Gehinom. Great question. Gehinom is... Yes, that's, that's exactly right. Gehenna also is derived from Gehinom in the Hebrew. It is different from Sheol, from the pit. This uh, idea that uh, gives us our formulation around hell. Gehinom gets rendered... It, we see it originally in the Bible as this place where the destruction of evildoers occurs. Uh, it's this place where idolaters and those who perform human sacrifices are destroyed in the biblical imagination. In the rabbinic narrative, it gets transformed. It becomes a purgatory of sorts. Evil souls are sent to Gehinom for 12 months. After 12 months, they are either fit for Olam Haba, the world to come, or they are destroyed. So Gehinom becomes this uh, place of punishment, of purgatory, of wringing out the wrongdoing. Now, it's interesting that they talk about uh, Gehinom here. It becomes this, du- this dual image to the first 12 years, where the cave for them allows them to live out their fantasy. The cave for them is this place where they don't have to deal with the world and its concerns. They are, they are provided for. It's a paradise of sorts. It actually, I would suggest, is meant to evoke Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, this paradise place. And they come out of that with their judgment and their loathing and their destruction. They're sent back into it, but this time it's Gehinom. It goes from Gan Eden to Gehinom, the same place, but what changes is their relationship with it and with the rest of the world. So they are sent back in. I want to ask you a question. Yes. Why they stay 12 years? 12 and 12. And now 12 months. So what is the 12? 
That's a great question. There's an, always an invitation when we have numbers to wonder what is the significance of these numbers. There are 12 tribes. The Gekinom has this 12 months. Um, they are there 12 years. There's not one definitive answer to that. It's an invitation, I think, to ask these questions, to wonder, does it represent in some ways the totality of Jewish peoplehood if it's evoking the tribes? That's a question, too. Is there a country um, of 12? That does not there, work. I'm sure, are several, are many of them. I have an iPhone app, iGamatria, which we could play with, but I left my phone in the office. So I don't have iGamatria. We can't play with Gamatria right this minute, but it is an invitation to play with the numbers in that sense. One more question. Hang on a sec. Yeah, go ahead. In, in, before, they say women are a weak resort. Yeah. yeah. Now, the bad call is the voice of a woman. Yes. Isn't that something, that they have spurned the living female, but the female aspect of the divine, as they understand, this predates Kabbalah, just so you know, but this female element is rebuking them, is telling them, sending them back into their cave. I think you're absolutely right to pick up on that dynamic, that they somehow think that they are above or better, or they are judging the feminine. Well, this thing is a corrective to them in that sense. Is that the mother? Was bat called literally? Doesn't that mean daughter of a voice? Every daughter of the voice, a voice, daughter of voice. It's a little non-specific, and it's. I think it's actually meant to be non-specific. It's meant to speak to this transcendent experience of the divine that is a little tricky in terms of if you're trying to make your movie version. What exactly would that look like? Um, I think it's supposed to be vague. That uh, tells the child what to do? You could certainly read it that way, that it is similar to the mother rebuking a child. I think that this uh, formulation invites you to bring that reading to the table. A couple more uh, points over here. Yeah. The voice did not say stay for 12 months. It just said go in the cave. And somehow they found a rule that said you should 12 months in the city is the maximum. And then the last sentence in the whole thing has to do with things are good because the commandments still exist. Yes, we'll get there. (laughs) Yeah, but is this the first one? The commandments come out of their own head? Okay, that's a good question, too. Did they even lose sight of their commandments in in spite of all of their high learning? Uh, They create one. I mean, the 12 months they created I'm not sure if this is the first place that 12 months in Gehinom is attested. I think that it may be attested somewhere else, and they're speaking to it as a tradition. Um, generally speaking, if they're going to create precedents, they'll pin it on some kind of Torah verse or a verse from Bible. They're, they'll explain, okay, because this verse says that, therefore, this is how it is. So I'm... This leads me to believe that this is probably established elsewhere and they know about it. And so they're saying, all right, if we have to go back to the cave, well, you only spend 12 months in Gekinom, so we should be able to come out in another 12 months. So. But it's, it's a law. This is why I'm relating it. They perceive it as a law. As a principle of some sort, yes. Well, they must have made some sort of um, transformation in their behavior during those 12 months because it's just. My son, you and I are acceptable, but uh, Rabbi Eliezer was not behaving very well. So where did he come from? Where did Rabbi Eliezer come from? That's his son. That's his son. Rabbi Eliezer is his son. Ah, 
okay, because he's not. I could have put a little bracket, a bracket in there saying oh, that yes, he's not named. So the we son are is Rabbi Eliezer. Yes, but and the rabbis were accepted. Both of us. So. He's not named until this point, which perhaps is instructive. But the rabbis who would have been talking about this would have known that. Oh, of course, his son is Rabbi Eliezer Ben Shimon. In fact, would be his name. You could look him up. Yeah. They would have known that. Oh, his son, that must indicate him. Um, it's always a question to me when writing this out. Do I want to write all of that out, even though the literal text doesn't say who that is? No, even though right. it's implied. Right. So it, it unfolds itself over time. So it's always a question. Translation is... Translation and rendering this into another language is, I would suggest, an art rather than a science. Um, so, particularly where the rabbis take so much for granted and assume. I want us to, uh, let's get to this last paragraph and wrap up here. Um, this question, Linda, that you brought is, are they really reformed? Did this change them? We're going to have to revisit that in Shimon Bar Yochai Part 2. We're going to come back to this. This story actually continues forward. I didn't give you all Part 2. We're going to do it next time. But the story continues forward. So does somebody want to read that last paragraph? On the eve of Shabbat before sunset, they saw an old man holding two bundles of myrtle and running at twilight. They asked him, what are these for? He replied, they are in honor of Shabbat. They responded, but shouldn't one suffice? He answered, one is for remember, the other is for keep. Rabbi Shimon turned to his son and said, look how precious the commandments are to Israel. At this, his mind was eased. Okay. So those two words, keep and remember, perhaps you've heard them before during the Lachado D prayer every week. Shamor v'zachor, bidibor echad. This idea, shamor, to keep, zachor, to remember. And we get that from Torah. The commandment, the actual commandments around Shabbat, we get from, if you look at the footnote there, Exodus and Devarim here. Um, the Exodus one, it says, Zachor et Yom HaShabbat Lekad Show. Remember the Sabbath day to sanctify it. And then the keep one, the one from Dvarim, says, um, Shamor et Yom HaShabbat Lekad Show. It's almost the same, except that verb is different. So there we have observe or keep. Shamor, this word for keeping, for guarding. Um, Zachor being about memory, for remembering. So... The rabbis also, they spend a lot of time on this idea of keep and remember and how are those the same thing? How are those different verbs for the same commandment? So here they see that this guy has two uh, bundles and so, and they ask him, well, why do you have the two of them? He says, ah, oh, well, it's because of shamor v'zachor. It's because of keep and remember. So at this, they say, okay, well, maybe the people of Israel are connected to the mitzvot. Maybe they aren't so far afield. Maybe they are in touch with Shabbat. His mind was eased. Is the reference here to mitzvot in general or to the Ten Commandments? Because the Shemor and Vazachor are both in the Ten Commandments. That's right. Um, they are it in the Ten commandments, commandments, and those also come up. I mean, what it says is it's talking about the mitzvot. Oh, it's in yeah. general, mitzvot. Yeah, it's not talking about specifically the uh, Serda Dibrot, the uh, Ten Commandments. Um, I could have left that as mitzvot as well. Okay. Um, and perhaps that would have been more uh, precise. Yeah, they're talking about uh, how how lovely it is that the mitzvot are precious to Israel. So here's a really interesting thing for us to take. I'm going to wrap up here. I recognize we're almost out of time. We're dealing with these folks for whom 
piety is of the utmost import. It's this Haredi impulse to somehow sequester yourself into a holy space or study and not actually interact with the world. And here we have actually God intervening to show that you can take all of that too far. Yes, the world around you is imperfect. Yes, the world as we have it is not this place where we can only bury ourselves in piety and in study and abandon our families, abandon any kind of reality, any kind of lived experience, any kind of action taking part in this world. It's not okay just to sit around and study the mitzvot day in and day out. You're supposed to do them at some point. Uh, you're supposed to actually be part of the living, breathing world. And we understand that the world is not perfect. There's a suggestion here that perhaps that's why this whole thing hinges around Shabbat. That Shabbat is this time of rest. It can be a time of rest from our work. It can also be a time of rest from being faced with reality, being faced with the imperfections of the world around us that we deal with day in and day out. Um, that said, we can't retreat to the cave and just forget about it all and have this idealized painting of what reality is with our study in this perfect little paradise. That's not for us to do. Um, that, in fact, can even have a corrupting influence. We see here that it's not that they are uplifted in their piety, in their learning, in their wisdom by dwelling in the cave. They actually, uh, they are actually corrupted by it. The fact that they are not taking part in the world, they are only learning about mitzvot rather than doing them, has a corrupting influence on them. They emerge um, damaged, essentially, from the experience, and it's for them to try and come back from that. Uh, I want to put a bookmark in it here because I think Linda asked the uh, relevant question, which is, well, were they reformed? Did they manage to come back to the world of the living, the world of action, the world of reality? Did they manage to come back uh, from this fantasy land that they were in, first from Gan Eden, from paradise, and then later reconfigured as Gehinom? Are they intact after that? What is going on with the two of them? These are all questions we're going to hold for next time. And next time when we resolve this, I'm actually going to tell you a little bit about Shimon Bar Yochai and his resonance in contemporary Judaism, as well as his place in contemporary Israeli society. His is a remarkable uh, legacy that has played out in the Jewish people for generations and generations over the centuries. He, much like uh, Eliyahu Anavi, Elijah the prophet, he doesn't come back but he is still alive in terms of his legacy and his meaning and his merit in ways that very, very few of these rabbis are. So we're going to spend a lot more time with Shimon Bar Yochai, with this great rabbi for his learning, for his brilliance, for his thoughts, also for his faults and his flaws and his inabilities to square this idyllic fantasy world of his with the lived experience. So it's a pleasure, as always, learning with all of you. We'll put a bookmark in it here, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Have a good night.